Our sermon text this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would show us Jesus today. Give us eyes to see his goodness and his glory so that we cannot help but set our hearts, our hopes, our very lives solely and completely on him. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. The book of Hebrews is a book written to help you persevere, to keep on clinging to Jesus, to recognize and resist the temptations in our hearts to slowly turn away from him and root our hope in something lesser. It's a book written for a church in the wilderness, a church who's started the long journey to her true home but hasn't yet reached the blessed land. This book is here in the Bible, training us for hope in the wilderness because the wilderness is the hardest place to keep on hoping, isn't it? When you're in the in-between place, in between the home you left and the home you're headed to, all sorts of questions and doubts and fears, they start to arise. We may begin on the journey of the Christian life with romantic notions of heroic faith. But when we find that the journey is longer and harder, and full of more sacrifice and opposition and discouragement and loneliness and tears and waiting than we ever expected, it can be a profoundly disorienting experience, can't it? We may start to wonder, did I really leave my old life behind for this? Now that's the kind of question Israel started asking in their wilderness. God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, but they had to journey through the wilderness in order to reach the new home where God promised to live in glory with them, among them. Precisely 40 years from the day, that they had sacrificed the Passover lambs on their way out of Egypt, they would cross over into the promised land. Forty years to the day. God would keep his word. But in the wilderness, on the way, they started to doubt God's goodness, his love, his provision, his 
purposes. And over time, a chorus starts to build in the wilderness. We ate our full in Egypt. We had delicacies in Egypt. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? The wilderness suffocated their hope to the point that they would rather go back to their slavery than live in God's freedom and keep pressing forward toward God's promises. Now, God writes history in patterns. It's one of the beautiful things about the Bible. God writes history in patterns. And the next few chapters of Hebrews will use Israel's wilderness wandering as an example for the first generation of the church because in God's crafting of the story of history, the church was living the exact same wilderness scene. Israel in the first century had become like Egypt. The temple leaders were heaping burdens on the people's shoulders, just like Pharaoh. And Jesus came like Moses, announcing that the nation was under God's judgment. But to rescue all who would follow after him, Jesus died and rose again to freeze people from sin and death and to bring them out from under the temple system with its oppressive leaders so that they could be his exodus people. Liberated, restored to God, filled up with the spirit of glory. But imagine what that first generation of Christians must have experienced. Think about it. Dwell on it. I don't think we really appreciate what it had to have been like for them. They claimed that Jesus was their sacrifice, their priest, their resurrected king, who had filled them with his spirit and made them the temple of the living God. It's quite a claim. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem... Sacrifices are still happening. Priests are still serving. The temple is still standing. Charges of blasphemy, a capital offense, are being leveled against Christians. And doubts are swirling. They're in the air over whether Jesus really is the king he said he was. Why is the book of Hebrews so concerned about the church not returning to pre-Jesus Jewish religion? It's because going back would have been genuinely attractive. Especially for Hebrew Christians, Israelite Christians, who were suffering the alienation and persecution from their own people, from their own families even, while the temple is churning right along on its mountain with the approval of the Roman Empire. Just like Israel's wilderness, in what is no mere coincidence, 40 years to the day after Jesus the Passover lamb was slaughtered, Jerusalem would be sieged and the temple would be destroyed, demonstrating for all the world to see that Jesus' words were true, that he really is the king he said he was that the old temple of stone had given way to a new temple built with the bodies and souls of those who trust in him. But until that happened, in the middle of that 40-year wilderness, 10, 20, 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, a Hebrew Christian could very well be tempted. We wouldn't blame them. They could very well be tempted to look at the splendor and sophistication and cultural respectability of the temple. And think to themselves, 
Am I a fool? Have I thrown my life away? Would it not be better for me to go back to Egypt? And the author of Hebrews is talking direct, directly to that saint. And he's saying, don't give up your hope in the wilderness. In God's grand patterned story of history, you and I are in the wilderness too. We followed Jesus by faith on an exodus out of the land of shadow. And we're on our way to a homeland where we will dwell in the glory of the Lord forever. And in Hebrews 3, God is calling us to persevere in the wilderness the same way he called the first generation of Christians. How? Two simple words. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. The way to persevere in hope is to consider Jesus. Dwell upon Jesus. Do business with the beauty of Jesus. Come face to face with the glory of Jesus such that you can't bear the thought of giving yourself to anyone or anything less than him. So we're going to consider Jesus together as we open ourselves up to Hebrews 3. And we're going to explore three things. The superiority of the Savior, the meaning of Moses, and the habit of holding fast. So let's start with the superiority of the Savior. As we've seen, Hebrews is particularly addressing Christians who are tempted to turn back to Moses, to the entire system of relating to God that Moses inaugurated after the Exodus, and that he came to represent in the Israelite imagination. But in his attempt to help people resist that temptation, the author of Hebrews doesn't denigrate Moses. He doesn't slander Moses. He doesn't diminish Moses in any way. No, he honors Moses. He gives Moses his due. He recognizes Moses' greatness. He acknowledges to them, you're right to respect Moses. But then he systematically shows that Jesus is better in every possible conceivable way. We've all heard the song that goes, anything you can do, I can do better. This paragraph is essentially the Bible's version of that song. Everything Moses is, Jesus is better. How so? Jesus is a better apostle. Now, an apostle is a sent one. That's what it means. And Moses is the apostle of the Exodus, sent by God to announce God's word of judgment against Egypt and his word of deliverance for Israel. When God commissions Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, he says over and over again, I am sending you. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moses is sent by God with a message and he's to announce himself as the apostle of I am. But Jesus is better. Moses was sent with a revelation from God. Jesus was sent as the revelation of God. Moses was sent by God. Jesus was sent as God. Moses was commissioned by the I am. Jesus is the I am. Now remember how Hebrews began. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1 tells Moses came with a word. Jesus came as the word. And Jesus came with a better message too. 
Not just judgment against oppressors and freedom from national slavery, but judgment against sin, death, and Satan himself that brings freedom from spiritual bondage so that we can enjoy eternal life with the God who is himself the very fountain of joy. Moses was the apostle of the Exodus, but Jesus is a better apostle of a better Exodus. And Jesus is a better priest, too. He's a better priest. Moses was in many ways the model priest of Israel. After the Exodus, he went up on Mount Sinai into the glory cloud of God's presence. He stood there. He represented Israel before the Lord and interceded on their behalf, asking God for mercy when they would repeatedly rebel against him. Moses even eventually ordained the priesthood who would carry on his type of work in the tabernacle. But Jesus is better. After his exodus, Jesus went up the heavenly mountain on a cloud into the very presence of God. He offered himself as the sacrifice for sin, and he represents his people perfectly and eternally before the face of God, definitively interceding for us, securing on our behalf the never-ending delight of God. Now remember how Hebrews began. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus made his home in the presence of the Lord for all that Moses did. He never did that. And though Moses ordained priests for service in the tabernacle, when Jesus gave us his spirit, he ordained us as an entire community of priests, a kingdom of priests who live in the presence of the Lord day by day. He transformed us into a tabernacle. Every single one of you who trusts in Jesus is a living house where the glory of God makes his home and he's not moving out. Jesus is a better priest. He's a better apostle, but he's a better servant too. When Israel was wandering through the wilderness in Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' own brother and sister, got jealous of Moses' leading status, and they started grumbling. They started complaining against him. After all, Aaron was the high priest of Israel. Miriam was a prophetess who wrote a song that was recorded in the pages of Scripture. Why should Moses get all the good press? Why should Moses be so exalted over us? But the Lord rebukes them, and here's what he says. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Now, when God says to Miriam and Aaron that Moses is faithful in all his house as a servant, it is intended to be the highest commendation. It's a mic drop moment. It is meant to shut the mouth of every whisper of opposition against Moses' authority. But friend, Jesus is better. How can that be? 
The whole point of God's commendation in Numbers 12, faithful in all God's house as a servant, was that no other servant in God's entire household could compare to Moses. And Hebrews 3 is saying, right, that's exactly right. No other servant in the house can compare, but Jesus is not a servant in the house. Listen to verses 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was in the household. Jesus is over the household. Moses was a servant under God's supreme authority. Jesus is the son who exercises God's supreme authority. Moses pointed God's household, his children, to the treasures of the father. Jesus possesses all the treasures of the Father, and pours them out on sinners that he made into his brothers and sisters at the cost of his own blood. Moses could speak mouth to mouth with God. Jesus is the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Moses beheld the form of the Lord. Jesus is the form of the Lord, the exact imprint of his nature. When Moses met with God, his face would shine lit up, reflecting the glory of the Lord, but Jesus is himself the glory of the Lord. He doesn't reflect God's glory like a mirror. He radiates God's glory from his very being, and he shines it on you so that you too might shine like the stars in the heavens. When Moses beheld the glory, he was beholding the glory that belongs to Jesus. Jesus can serve you better because he serves you not as a servant of the king. He serves you as the son of the king who has the royal right to positively deluge you, overwhelm you with every blessing that belongs to him and his kingdom. That's why he serves you better. Moses was the premier servant in God's household. But Moses was merely a servant in a household where Jesus reigns. And if God asked Aaron and Miriam, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You know what Hebrews is asking us? Why then were you not afraid to speak against my son Jesus? But Hebrews takes it even a step further. Here's what it says. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, what's he saying? Jesus is to Moses as a builder is to a house, and the builder of all things is God. Now, when you connect those dots, the author is saying, Jesus the Son is God himself, and the God-man Jesus built the house that Moses is and is a member in. Remember how Hebrews began. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, through whom also he created the world. Moses exists because Jesus made him. I love the author Umberto Eco. He was, he was a positively tremendous writer. And in an interview, a journalist 
compared Echo's book, Foucault's Pendulum, to Dan Brown's best-selling book, The Da Vinci Code, maybe you can imagine how a true literary master might bristle. Um, and in what may be the greatest literary insult of all time, it's just delicious. Echo, without skipping a beat, replied, the author Dan Brown is a character from Foucault's Pendulum. I invented him. In other words, Dan Brown writes like someone I dreamed up. Don't compare us as authors. We're not in the same stratosphere. I create literary worlds. Dan Brown merely plays in the worlds I've written. Echo is, of course, exaggerating a bit to make his point. He did not invent Dan Brown, but the point comes through loud and clear. But Hebrews is saying something very similar and far more literal about Jesus and Moses. Moses is a character in the story Jesus is writing. Moses is a note in the symphony Jesus is conducting. Moses is a creature in the world Jesus brought into existence. Moses is a part of the house. Jesus is the builder. Hebrews invites us to dwell upon the superiority of Jesus to Moses in all sorts of ways. But when we accept that invitation, when we keep on digging, the contrast only becomes clearer and clearer. Hebrews affirms Moses as a faithful servant. But anyone who knows Moses' story knows that it's not all roses and sunshine, right? Anyone who knows Moses' story knows that for all his faithfulness, he bore all the frailties of a sinful man. When he was sent by God as the apostle of the Exodus, his first response was, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. He interceded on Israel's behalf time and time again. But Moses eventually came to a point where he was so fed up with their grumbling that he told God, he said to God that he would rather die than carry this people by himself. He was a faithful servant. But in his frustration with Israel, he disobeyed the Lord and struck a rock in anger to give water to the people. And God rebuked Moses and ended up barring him from leading Israel into the promised land. Moses' faithfulness came with all the frailties of a sinful man, but Jesus exhibited a better faithfulness. When God sent him as the apostle of a new exodus, Jesus did not resist like Moses. He willingly stepped down from heaven to take on flesh as an infant and accomplish our deliverance, whatever the cost. Moses would rather die than have to represent a sinful people alone, but Jesus offered himself in death in order to represent a sinful people alone, to mediate for them before the face of God, and he never runs out of patience or mercy as he intercedes for you and me today and always. Moses struck a rock in anger and was kept out of the promised land. But Jesus was struck like a rock, bearing the anger of God in our place to deliver you all the way to God's promised land. Ain't nothing going to keep you from finding your home because Jesus took the wrath for you. And on the cross, the gospel tells us, when water poured forth from Jesus' side, just like Moses' struck rock, it was God's way of telling you that Jesus' death opens up 
his eternal river of mercy and joy that can finally quench your thirsty heart. Everything Moses is, Jesus is better. Why would we ever turn back? Why would we ever turn back? Second, we need to see the meaning of Moses. In the midst of surveying the superiority of Jesus, verse 5 says something quite profound. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to, literally, for a testimony of the things that were to be spoken later. Now what are those things to be spoken later? Again, perhaps unsurprisingly, let's go back because he's referencing the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Verse 5 is telling us that the whole purpose of Moses' life is to serve as a testimony to the things that God would one day speak in his son. Moses existed to bear witness to the works and wonders that Jesus would one day fulfill. To put it simply, Jesus is the meaning of Moses. Now, if you look carefully at the New Testament, you'll actually find that the biblical authors all over the place, they tell the story of Jesus in the grammar of Moses. They're demonstrating every step of the way that Jesus' life fulfills the pattern of Moses because Jesus is a greater Moses. And in addition to everything we've already seen, just consider Moses was rescued as a child from a wicked king who slaughtered the sons of Israel. Jesus was rescued as a child when Herod ordered the murder of every infant male in and around Bethlehem. Moses left his home in Egypt when his life was in danger and later returned to deliver Israel. Jesus' family took him to Egypt until it was safe for him to return and save his people. Moses worked signs and wonders to demonstrate that his message was from God. Jesus worked signs and wonders to demonstrate that he is God. Moses led Israel to slaughter the Passover lambs so that they wouldn't receive judgment. Jesus gave himself as the true Passover lamb to take the judgment for his people. Moses brought Israel out of Egypt through the waters of the sea. Jesus walked on the waters of the sea in his life. And then he led his people out of death when he traveled his own exodus up out of the grave. Moses went up on the mountain to God in a cloud. Jesus ascended to heaven to God in a cloud. Moses oversaw the construction of the tabernacle so that God could dwell among his people. Jesus lived as the tabernacle, the presence of God robed in human flesh. And then when he went up to his heavenly mountain, he poured out his spirit and made his church into a tabernacle so that God could dwell within, not merely among his people. Moses instructed the people when God provided bread from heaven in the wilderness. And in his ministry, Jesus multiplied bread to feed thousands in the wilderness. And in his death, he gave himself as the heavenly bread so that his church could feast upon and find fullness in him as we travel through the wilderness even now. When Jesus was speaking with the Jewish leaders in John 5, he told them, he, he looked them in the eye and he said to them, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. 
Hebrews 3 says the very same thing. If you truly understand Moses, you won't follow Moses. If you truly understand Moses, you will run to follow Jesus because Moses' entire life was a testimony to the things that would one day be spoken, revealed, and accomplished in Jesus Christ. Moses is a compass pointing you to Jesus, the treasure. Moses is the pair of 3D glasses so that you can see the Bible's portrait of Jesus pop out in all its splendor. Moses is a silhouette on the wall. Jesus is the beautiful substance casting the shadow. Moses is not the hero of God's story. He's an arrow, a witness, a testimony, pointing you to the hero. The shape of Moses' life in the Bible is an outline so that you'll recognize the fulfillment when the real thing steps onto the scene in Jesus. Now, unlike the first generation church, I doubt many of us here today are tempted, really, to turn from Jesus to go back to Moses and the Old Testament religious system. But you may be drawn to find your life, to root your ultimate joy, hope, and meaning in some other aspect of God's created world. And we need to understand that what is true of Moses is true of every molecule in creation. Every single aspect, every single dimension, every single feature of God's cosmos exists to point you to the power, glory, and love of Jesus. The Son who created all things is the heir of all things. All things are from him and for him, through him and to him. That's what the Bible says. Every good gift in creation is a revelation of Jesus Christ, the giver. Every brushstroke of beauty on the canvas of the world is a testimony to the beauty of Jesus Christ, the artist. Every glimmer of joy we experience in this world is an echo of the fullness of joy to be found in Jesus Christ the creator of heaven and earth, who created you, yes, who created you to find your supreme satisfaction, your fullness in the inexhaustible riches of his glory and his grace. Hebrews shows us that if you fixate on Moses to the exclusion of Jesus, you've missed the meaning of Moses. And friend, if you fixate on any aspect of creation as if it can give you what your heart is truly hungry for, you have missed the meaning of creation. Because Jesus is the meaning of Moses and everything else. And the depths of wholeness that the Hebrew Christians were tempted to search for in Moses, that we're tempted to search for in creation, can only be found in the one to whom they were both designed from the outset. We only rob ourselves of joy when we live as if this world is the meaning of this world. But third, we need to consider the habit of holding fast. The habit of holding fast. The author of Hebrews desperately wants us to cling to Jesus, to reject the siren song of second-rate saviors. 
to resist the temptation to let go of Jesus in order to grab on to something else. And he ends this passage by reminding us that everything he said about Jesus, all the glories and blessings and benefits that he's rattled off will only be a glory and a blessing and a benefit to us if we keep on holding on to them. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We are his house. If we hold fast to our confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. If we hold fast to the hope, the future that he secures for us as the source of our boasting, as the source of our joy, the source of our deepest sense of privilege. It probably goes without saying, but those who don't want Jesus won't have Jesus. But the Bible tells us that no one who runs to him will ever be turned away. The author of Hebrews tells us that the household of the Lord, the household of Jesus, is those who keep running to him, who keep holding on to him. And he wants each one of us to keep holding fast so that we can experience the absolute wholeness that Jesus offers now and forever. But how do we do that in the wilderness? How do we keep holding fast? First, we need to develop the habit of comparing everything else to Jesus. Some of us probably need to fight the temptation to compare ourselves. But listen to this. You fight temptation by comparing Jesus. That's really what the entire book of Hebrews is all about. Every time Hebrews introduces something that might pull our gaze away from Jesus, it jumps into another litany of all the ways that Jesus is better. We need to develop that skill, that impulse, that instinct in our own hearts as well. What are you tempted to worship? Right here, right now. What are you tempted to worship? Money, power, sex, beauty? Compare it to Jesus. And truly ask yourself, which would-be Savior is actually able to give you what you're searching for? What are you drawn to find your hope in? Approval? Power? Success? Hold it up side by side with Jesus. And take the time. I mean, you're staking your whole life on it, right? It deserves a moment of attention. Take the time. To genuinely assess where that path will lead you and which hope will truly yield the more beautiful life. If you actually take the time to honestly evaluate your temptations in comparison with Jesus, I can assure you he will never come in second place. We need to internalize the Bible strategy of comparing Jesus to our lesser loves because if you do that, Every time your heart twinges in another direction, it's going to become an opportunity to be confronted all over again with the superiority of Jesus Christ over every possible rival that your heart could ever imagine. But second, we need to develop the habit of rehearsing Jesus's gifts. Every single human being needs to know the answer to three questions. Who am I? Does anybody love me? And does my life matter? 
We need status, belonging, and purpose. And every pseudo-savior that would lure us from Jesus offers to answer those deep needs for us. They offer an answer. But do you know who is immune to that allure? Those who are utterly convinced that their deepest needs have already been completely met. That's who's immune to the allure of pseudo-saviors. When you're starving, a scrap of moldy bread looks like a lifeline. But when you're reclining at the banquet table, a moldy morsel is no temptation at all. You've filled up on the best. You've lost your appetite for anything less. Now notice how Hebrews 3 begins. It begins by rehearsing what Jesus has already done for us. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Everything you've ever wanted is right there in that sentence. In Jesus, you have a status. You're holy, set apart for God, washed spotless, welcomed into the holy presence of a holy God as someone who has a right to stand there, who has a right to live there. Who needs to fight to prove yourself when you've been exalted and set apart by the King of Kings himself? You have a status. In Jesus, you have belonging. You're not just holy, you're holy brothers, holy sisters, holy members of the family of God. Now, often we chase the idols that offer us a sense of community. We chase the idols that offer us belonging in the in-group, where we finally feel like we can belong and feel loved. But when you're part of a family where God is your father, where Jesus is your elder brother who looks out for you at the cost of his life, where the whole church throughout time is your heritage, your family tree, where other Christians right here and now are your concrete family of grace, ready to meet your needs, ready to step in at a moment's notice, to act in love on your behalf. When you've got that kind of family, you can finally stop chasing your sense of belonging and start living in the gift of it. In Jesus, you have a purpose. You share in a heavenly calling. You've not only been redeemed and brought into a holy family, you've been commissioned with a calling by the high king of heaven to live before his face, Worship his name, experience his joy, bear witness to his love, spread his good news, and live every day like the royal heir and holy priest that you truly are in Jesus. Everyone wants their life to matter. That, that is a basic human instinct. Everyone wants their life to matter. Everyone's searching for a sense of purpose that will give their life meaning. That, that will transcend beyond themselves. And we'll commit our lives to all sorts of things in order to attain that. 
But Jesus stepped out of heaven to give you a heavenly calling. You don't have to create transcendent meaning for your life. The transcendent God who transcends heaven and earth has infused your life with meaning by wrapping you up in his transcendent purpose for the entire world. Hebrews rehearses the gifts of the gospel to remind us that we're not starving in the wilderness. We truly possess everything we could have ever dreamed of. So even in the wilderness... We can resist the temptation to look for lesser gifts in lesser gods. Now we need to cultivate that rhythm in our own hearts. Reciting, revisiting, rejoicing in the gifts that Jesus lived and died to pour out on us. Filling up our hearts with the feast of the gospel. So that we aren't hungry for the moldy scrap of bread competing competing gods are offering us. Every saint who comes to the end of her days trusting Jesus knows that the only reason she truly held fast to Jesus was because Jesus was holding fast to her. Every saint who comes to the end knows that beyond a shadow of a doubt. But one of the chief ways that he holds fast to us is by repeatedly enthralling our hearts with his supremacy and his accomplishments so that our souls will hold fast to him. He is calling you right now in his word. Look to me. He is showing you right now in his word. Here is all I am and all I have done. Hear him. Because that is one of the gracious ways that he keeps you clinging to him. After Jesus fed the 5,000 and walked on water to teach on the other side, Jesus taught that he was the bread of heaven. Better than the heavenly bread that Moses provided in the wilderness. And when they heard it, the Gospel of John tells us many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus turned to the twelve and asked them, Do you want to go away as well? And Peter looked at him and said the words that every Christian has to learn to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. As we build the habit of comparing Jesus and rehearsing his gifts, we will steadily be convinced that there is nothing in the whole grand universe worth trading for Jesus. Nurtured by the feast of the gospel, our hearts will grow to say with Peter, from the depth of our being, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So come now, to this table, to this feast that he has prepared for you. Fill up on his glory. Gorge your heart on his grace. Do business with the glory of Jesus. Consider Jesus. And hold fast to it in the wilderness.
Let's pray.